invite you to uh, take them and turn with me to Genesis chapter 26. We are back in um, Genesis. We talked a couple weeks ago. We're in the second half of the book, which is going to move um, somewhat rapidly as uh, we're this morning going to look at the end of Isaac, and then we'll be uh, moving into Jacob and Joseph, and um, and so that's going to uh, that's going to move rather quickly. This morning we're talking about how the gospel transforms conflict. So if you've lived, and all of you are, you know about conflict. You have experienced it in your lives already, one way or the other. And uh, the question is, has uh, that conflict in your life been redeemed? Meaning, has it been of any gospel value to you or to those with whom you were in conflict? It's a good question to think about. There are numbers of approaches as you uh, come to conflict. Some people run headlong. They confront it directly. They uh, they take it as it comes to them, and there's no fear. You may be one of those people. People don't like that. Uh, they tend to run from the person who runs to conflict. Uh, then there's the classic avoider, uh, the person who wants absolutely nothing to do with conflict. They they won't return that item to the Sears counter because they fear there may be some conflict with the receptionist. Uh, they certainly don't want it in their relationships. They do absolutely everything they can do uh, to avoid it. Uh, Various approaches to conflict. This morning, we're going to see Isaac as he encounters conflict in his life. So we're not taking the whole chapter of Genesis 26. We're going to take this middle section that begins in in, uh, in verse 12 and runs down to the end in verse 32. So chapter 26, beginning in verse 12, running to 32. Let's read it together. Isaac planted crops in that land, and that same year reaped a hundredfold because the Lord blessed him. The man became rich, and his wealth continued to grow until he became very wealthy. He had so many flocks and herds and servants that the Philistines envied him. So all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the time of his father Abraham, the Philistines stopped up filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, Move away from us. You have become too powerful for us. So Isaac moved away from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar, where he settled. Isaac reopened the wells that had been dug in the time of his father Abraham, which the Philistines had stopped up after Abraham died. And he gave them the same names his father had given them. Isaac's servants dug in the valley and discovered a well of fresh water there. But the herders of Gerar quarreled with those of Isaac and said, The water is ours. So he named the well Essek, because they disputed with him. Then they dug another well, but they quarreled over that one also. So he named it Sitna. And he moved on from there, and he dug another well, and no one quarreled over it. And he named it Rehoboth, saying, Now the Lord has given us room. And we will flourish in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba. And that night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham. 
Do not be afraid, for I am with you, and I will bless you, and will increase the number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Isaac built an altar there, and he called on the name of the Lord. And there he pitched his tent, and there his servants dug a well. Meanwhile, Abimelech had come to him from Gerar with Azua, his personal advisor, and Philcol, the commander of his forces. And Isaac asked them, Why have you come to me, since you were hostile to me and sent me away? And they answered, We we saw clearly that the Lord was with you. And so we said, There ought to be a sworn agreement between us, between you and us. Let us make a treaty with you. You will do us no harm, just as we did not harm you, but always treated you well and sent you away peacefully. And now you are blessed by the Lord. Isaac made a feast for them, and they ate and drank. And early the next morning, the men swore an oath to each other. And then Isaac sent them on their way, and they went away peacefully. That day, Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug, and they said, We found water, and he called it Sheba. And to this day, the name of the town has been Beersheba. Let's pray. Father, we want to stop and we want to pause this morning as we come to your word and we pray that you would open it for us. May the meditations of our hearts and the words of my lips concerning it be acceptable in your sight for your glory. Amen. So you've got an outline that I've provided for you this morning. We're going to be talking about how the gospel transforms conflict. Three uh, subheadings that we're going to be looking at. The sorry situation the sterling solution, and the stellar outcome. Sorry situation, sterling solution, the stellar outcome. I almost had it. Couldn't come up with that final S. So I don't want you to forget what is going on in the book of Genesis, okay? Remember at the very beginning when we got into the life of Abraham, we were talking about how Abraham is our father, of everyone who would ever believe, who would ever trust in Christ, both prior to Christ's coming and after his coming, we are all descendants, spiritual descendants of our father Abraham. So we're connected to him. His story is our story. And so to understand our story, to understand where we fit into this giant puzzle, We have to understand the beginning of the story. And so we said, well, let's go back. Let's look at the life of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Anytime you move through Scripture, you are going to see the God of our father, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, our fathers. Every writer in the the Bible takes their story back to this story. And so it's really critical for us to know and to understand what is happening here. So don't lose sight of the big picture when we drill down into these small stories like this encounter that Isaac has with Abimelech. This story is our story. And you're gonna, and I hope as we work our way through a little bit of it this morning, you'll see reflections of their story with your story. But think about as well what is taking place as Moses writes this. Moses writing this account so that he can help the Israelites see their place in the story as they come out of 400 years of captivity and they go to take the promised land. Moses is capturing for them the early stages of their story. 
showing them how God was with their early ancestors and reminding them as He was with them, what? He'll be with you. That's the big picture for them, right? Understanding, yes, 400 400 years of captivity. But God's still with you. He still has a plan. And now here you are. Here you are on the cusp of going in and taking the land that Isaac wandered in and built wells in and redug wells in and, and had conflict in. All of those sorts of things. And he's saying to them, it's your story. Don't forget your story. Don't forget that God was with you. Back then, he was with your father Abraham, with your father Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, and he's with you now. Are there difficulties? Absolutely. Does it look hopeless sometimes? You bet. But God promises that he will build his people. Is there conflict? Certainly. Remember, Jesus told his disciples, If they hate you, just remember, they hated me first. Right? Don't forget, and we can't. So let's look at the sorry situation. Isaac has experienced quite clearly the blessing of the Lord. Verse 12. God has come along. He's planted crops. They've grown. He has harvested a hundredfold. He, the, the blessing of the Lord is clearly upon him. Amazing blessing. He's become wealthy. He's become rich. As you read through the text, it grows. There's a heightening sense. So it tells us first that he was rich, and then it says he was very wealthy. The indication is skyrocketing wealth. Isaac is doing quite well. He had servants. They grew in number. He had crops. They grew in production. He had livestock. They expanded and grew in number. He became so wealthy. He was doing so well. The text says that the Philistines envied him. The Philistines envied him. And how did they show their envy? Well, they went and they stopped up the wells that Abraham and his servants had dug years and years and years prior, and they filled them with dirt. Now, how many of you have ever ever had the water shut off to your house? Anybody ever had that happen? For what? A couple hours? A day? What's the inconvenience like? That's through the roof, right? You can't flush the commode. You can't wash the dishes. You can't do the wash. You can't water the yard. You can't do anything. The Philistines, in effect, cut off the water. They turned off the water for Isaac. Now, Isaac has herds. He has he has flocks. He has crops to water, he has people to feed, he has a large operation going on. The Lord has blessed him greatly. And the Philistines come along and they cut the water off at the street. Because they envied him, because they were jealous, because they saw the Lord's blessing on him. This was their way of politely moving him along. Now, what does he do? Well, I want you to think about this. 
notice what he doesn't do. Abimelech comes finally to him and says, Isaac, move away. You have become too powerful for us. Now, here's essentially what Abimelech is saying. We'll take the land. You move on. You find somewhere else to live. Now, let me ask you a question. Whose land is it? Whose land does this rightly belong to? Isaac. This is his. The Lord has promised him the land. It's his. I mean, he's got it in deed. He has it in blood, if you will. Literally. The covenant. The God of heaven and earth has promised That he can live there. He can dwell there. This is the land promised to his father and to him. And that God is going to build a great nation and they're going to bless the peoples of the earth and they're going to do it from this land. Of all the people that have the right to pound their fist on the table and to say, absolutely not, it's Isaac. And what does he do? He moves along. Was he scared? I don't think so. Was he intimidated? I I don't think so. The text doesn't give us any sense of that. Instead, he moved along in order to be at peace. The Philistines and Abimelech in the text are tyrants opposed not just to Isaac, They're opposed to everything that he stands for. They stand in opposition to the God of the covenant. They stand in opposition to the promises that God has made to Abraham and to Isaac now, to Isaac's children. They're in opposition. Here's the key. Beginning to think about this sorry situation, there is always, always, always opposition to the gospel. Always opposition to the advancement of God's covenant children doing and being who they are to do and be. The promise that God has given to us that he will multiply our numbers is constantly in jeopardy. Always in jeopardy. When you look out, when you look out at the world and you see all of these things happening, right? The cultural tide that is ebbing and flowing, uh, the rule of nations and the coming and going, every single bit of it can be tied to the efforts, the seed of the serpent to stop the promise from fruition. To stop God and his promise to bring in the sand and the seashore and the stars in the heavens. And it's always been there. And will always be there. Because the evil one longs to keep that from happening. He's desperate. Sometimes it's outward. Sometimes it's outward force that is bringing pressure on the people and on the promise. But here's something I want you to understand. 
Many times it's inward. Many times it's happening in our own hearts. Many times it is us. It it is our attitudes. It's our understanding of the gospel, perhaps. One of the chief tricks of the evil one is to move people off the gospel. To move people off the gospel. Tim Keller says that we will move generally in one of two directions. Even as redeemed folk. We will move towards religion or irreligion. We will move in one of those directions. Oh, I like to talk about it as if you're on the highway and you have the guardrails and you can go into one ditch or the other. And sometimes you will find your ditch is that of religion. That of, here's what religion tells us. Religion tells us that we do X, Y, and Z, and God looks favorably on us, and He blesses us. That is the easiest trap for us to fall into. That is the easiest trap for us to believe and live according to, to become our gospel, that God blesses us on the basis of what we do, say, and think. And the reality is, That the gospel tells us that God isn't pleased or not pleased with us on the basis of what we've done, but on the basis of who we are found in. Does Christ, does God see you in Christ, trusting in the work of Christ for your salvation? Or does He see you trusting in what you have done? That's the trap of religion. It's an easy trap for us to fall into. Or the trap of irreligion where we go and we do our own thing, where we throw caution to the wind and we say, I can live as I want to live. I've got grace. I have this. And we can go and do all of that. That's the other trap that we can find ourselves into. You could put it this way. Legalism or anti-legalism would be one way to say it. Either of those are successes in his book. Why? Because it gets us off the gospel and gets us in a in one of two wrong directions. Sometimes the pressure is outward. Sometimes the conflict is outside of us, exerting pressure on us. Sometimes it's in us. We want to be aware of it at all times. So here's the sorry situation for Isaac. The pressure is outward, coming to bear on him. What does he do? I want you to notice the sterling solution. The sterling solution... In his case, and in most cases, is not found in the exercise of power. Notice that when Isaac is confronted by the Philistines, what does he do? He acquiesces. He says, okay. I don't know about you, that's not my first choice in conflict. My first choice in conflict, generally speaking, is to just go straight in. I, I often joke, and it's it's the truth, on my computer, so I use Microsoft Outlook, and uh, you, you could go to my Gmail either way. But in my in my uh, draft box, I, I have literally hundreds of emails that I have done this in the heat of the moment, only to thankfully, Lord, not hit the send button. And they're sitting there, right? When I die, someone's going to go in there and they're going to go, Oh, man, you're not going to believe this one he almost sent. 
Because I tend to run directly into conflict. And, and thankfully, over some time, not always, but the Lord has been good and gracious to not allow me to run too fast and not hear what's happening around me. Isaac is confronted. They come. This is a really bad situation. It threatens everything he is. His complete livelihood is on the line. Imagine if someone were about, if someone grabbed the plug of your livelihood and yanked it out of the wall. Because that's what they've done to Isaac. And even though that happens, even though Isaac has the promise of God in his hip pocket, even though he knows the land was given to Abraham and it's his by God's decree, it is his right. Even though he is blessed by God and is in the right, he doesn't exercise power. He just doesn't do it. And generally, not always, but generally, when we exercise our power, we do it Not for the promise. We do it for personality. We do it for us. Isaac moves along. Not once. He moves along multiple times because they're hounding him. They're putting pressure on him. They want him further away, not closer. They want him out of their sight, out of their land. They want him out of the picture. They want to marginalize Isaac. You feel marginalized? They want to marginalize him. And so he moves. He moves. He moves. He moves. Until he can find a place where he can live and where peace will abound. Verse 25. Once he finds it. He built an altar and he called on the name of the Lord and he pitched his tent and he dug a well. And the text says he spread out and he lived. This is where I want to say thank you. Thank you, Isaac, for at this very moment pointing us away from the demand of our rights and toward the solution to everything that's wrong in the world pointing us to the solution, which is the cross of Christ. And what is the cross of Christ? It's extraordinarily powerful in its powerlessness. Right? One commentator said just this week, the heart of the gospel is the cross. And the cross is all about giving up The heart of the gospel is the cross. And the cross is all about giving up power. I want you to think about it in light of what the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, right? Because in Colossians 2, Paul gives us this beautiful picture, the summary of how the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, gave up all the glories of heaven to come down and take on the form of a man and to live amongst us. And then... To go to the cross and to die. 
powerful or powerless? You tell me. As he stood there on the cross and the soldiers mocked him, how did they mock him? They mocked him by saying, you are powerless. And yet he conquered death. The heart of the gospel is the cross, and the cross is all about giving up power. When Jesus was in the garden, they came to take him away. Peter went with the power option, and God took that sword, and Jesus took the sword, and he put it back in because he went with humility, and he willingly went. Isaac went with humility. He put his trust in the Lord and in his promises to him. And that's exactly what we see being affirmed for Isaac as the Lord meets with him in verse 24. God meets with him and he tells him again that he is his God and not to fear, for he is with him. At the moment at which, no doubt, Isaac felt powerless over the circumstances, God comes and says what? You're not powerless. You're powerful. And I am with you. And that's your power. No demanding of his rights. No pounding his fist on the table. No aligning himself with forces who could go and put a big one right on Abimelech. None of that. Instead, he moves on until he finds a place where he can spread out and be what? At peace. Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers. I want you to think about the stellar outcome, the sterling solution, which is the gospel, right? Listen, Isaac doesn't get there because he tried real hard. He gets there because God had already met with him a long time ago. He gets with, he gets there because God had met with his father and God had met with him and God had promised him, you are mine and I am with you. He declared himself for Isaac. And Isaac responded in the way that he does. I want you to think about the stellar outcome, which is, of course, that Abimelech sees the hand of the Lord upon Isaac. And so what does he do? Listen, he saw the hand of the Lord blessing Isaac, and he saw, no doubt, Isaac's response as he moved from place to place to place. And so what does he come? It's it's, it's interesting, isn't it? He comes and he sits down and he says, We showed no hostility towards you. Are you kidding me? Can you just imagine Isaac going, Oh, really? You just filled up, you just turned off the water supply for me and my family in the middle of the desert? Are you kidding me? You weren't hostile towards me? But he doesn't do that. He sits down. And he shares a meal with the man responsible for nearly putting an end to everything he knew. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall see God. So there he is, sitting with Abimelech, sharing a meal, drawing up a peace treaty, rising and going their separate ways, existing, listen, 
the humility that the gospel brings to our lives, if it doesn't, if it's not bringing that humility to our lives, something is not right in your understanding of the gospel. Because the gospel should bring an appropriate humility to our lives. And here's the reality. It is the single greatest weapon you have in the fight against the tyrant. Humility. It is the single most attractive part of the Christian life. Because it says, not me, but thee. Not not this. It's not about me. It's about him. And that's incredibly attractive instead of saying, be like this, like me. Understand what I know. Understand what I see. Instead, Isaac was all about the one who had called him and blessed him and promised his presence with him. And in everything he did, at this point, everything that he did pointed to the one whose hand was on him. And that is Yahweh. That's our prayer, isn't it? That's what Jesus calls us to be, salt and light. He says, let your good deeds shine before men so that they will see them and glorify our Heavenly Father, right? It's not the fist pounding. It's not the rights demanding. It's the loving our neighbors, ourselves. It's going into the street and caring for women who are being trafficked. It's looking after the orphan and nurturing them. It's loving the one who hates us that Jesus calls us to do. And remember, we said last week, there is no way for us to get there except through the gospel. Because the gospel strips away. It brings us down when we're haughty. It raises us up when we're struggling The gospel does all of that for us. And so let's give him thanks. Father, you're good to us. We praise you. We thank you. We bless you for this picture that comes to us of Isaac. And Father, we pray as we live, we would live well before you in light of this truth that you are our God. You've called us. You'll never leave us. You'll never forsake us for your We are yours in Christ. Go with us now, Father. Let us be a sweet aroma to our neighbors for your glory in Christ's name. Amen.